Hi, this is Paul. I'll go start blasting the Holy Post with Rob Reiner onto my YouTube screen. This is going to be fun. I watched when the Holy Post first came to YouTube. I watched it. It wasn't. It was. It was the Phil Visser podcast, and um, so I watched it for a long time. And I'd commenter. I was a very regular commenter. I was one of the early watchers of Phil and Sky. And Christian Taylor was kind of the, the the other person that was on there a lot then. And of course, lately, where where to begin with this? So earlier this week, I posted the video, this little corner in estuary, my post-evangelical evangelical paths forward. And I had Jake Meter's article that I read about sort of the unraveling of the young, restless, and reformed movement. And evangelicalism is itself in something of a crisis right now. There's a major rift in it that at least is partially caused by Donald Trump. I'd say it's also partially caused by the way that evangelicals are framed in the media in the aftermath of Donald Trump. And there's some evangelicals that are just falling all over themselves to make sure that they're not associated with Donald Trump and others who are falling all over themselves, making sure they're on Donald Trump's side, yada, yada, yada. It doesn't matter. We're in a position right now where a lot of things are becoming unraveled. You have questions about Pope Francis and his papacy and Protestantism and evangelicalism after sort of the waves of the seeker movement and then the emergent movement which sort of had the, the twin emphasis of kind of the, the progressive authenticity liberationist movement with let's say Nadia Boltz-Weber at the, at the helm of that. You have the young restless and reformed movement that Jake Meter very nicely sort of um, manages in there. And then suddenly there's going to be a documentary out with Phil Visser and Sky, Sky Jatani talking about Christian nationalism. And Phil sort of sets this up here, so let's watch it. Oh, the film gets made. I was interviewed, I don't know, a year ago or something. The film gets made. Uh, the trailer drops. Rob Reiner drops the trailer. Not Dan Partland, not, you know, someone else. Rob Reiner drops the trailer. My family. Now, if you go to the audio podcast, there's a little bit leading up to this, which is nice because you get a sense of who Dan is. Of course, Rob Reiner, we all sort of feel like we know because, well, I look at him and I'm old enough guy that I look at and say, there's Meathead um, from the Archie Bunker days and the Princess Bride and all of this stuff that he's done in Hollywood. And this guy's a documentary filmmaker. And of course, I think about our friend Justin and his documentary films and then they're going to make a documentary film about Christian nationalism. And Phil Visser talked about the fact that when he's asked to do that, he says, I'm not an expert, but of course, think about Molly Worthen and the Apostles of Reason and how evangelicalism works. I've made plenty of videos on that. I just saw that Speak Life just did a conversation with Molly Worthen and just just fascinating. We are living in the most interesting times. But anyway, let's go a little further in this because when Rob Reiner starts to talk, it's so interesting 
if you're thinking about the question of secularity and nationalism and dread Christian nationalism. Face is the first one that comes up in the trailer. Mm, immediately, no, people are saying, yeah, yeah, okay, thank you. I'll, I accept that. Um, immediately, people are saying, oh, oh, the Creative Veggie Tales partnered with Rob Reiner. Mm. I think he's an atheist and he hates Christians and yeah, he wants yeah, to, yeah. you know, he wants to undermine the church. And now you and all these other, Russell Moore, you know, and it's all the ones that, that people are mad at sure, anyway. Sure. But Russell Moore and, and, and David French are professional be mad at me people. <laughs> I'm an I'm an amateur be mad at me person. Well, it, it's it's the double-edged sword. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we wanted to uh, downplay. I mean, at, at initially we downplayed yeah. the fact that you know I'm helping fund the film and all this stuff because we knew that people would have a certain uh, perception of what the film was going to be. Right, but then right. when you're trying to get people to watch it. You use whatever, you know, means you can to get it out there to the public. Pause. Okay. But people have certain ideas about me, as I'm sure they have about you, Phil, but they don't necessarily know what really goes on and what true you really believe. And, and the truth of okay. the matter is I... Uh, you know, I went through a very hard time in my life when I was really down and, you know, that dark, you know, journey of the soul that they talk about. And I read everything. I read books on, on Christianity, on Buddhism, on Hinduism, on Muslim, even on Judaism. I was not raised as a religious. He's a seeker. Now, the last, the Friday morning video I made was this one the conversion of Jordan Hall. Jordan Hall was a seeker. Jordan Hall now in the in the grips of the meta crisis is is looking for something and Jordan Hall winds up in this church in North Carolina. And so, you know, I know that there's a bunch of you who just really want to hate on Rob Reiner and nothing I'm going to say is going to stop that. I totally get it. But just pause a little bit because in this little corner of the internet what rob reiner has just laid out is what many of you have been through so can you just just hold yourself back a little bit for a few minutes and just listen to the man just give him that Jew, I know I went through a very hard time in my life when I was really down and, you know, that dark, you know, journey of the soul that they talk about. And I read everything. I read books on, on Christianity, on Buddhism, on Hinduism, on Muslim, even on Judaism. I was and then, of course, all of our little religious tribalists will say, well, why didn't he stop with mine? There are Christian Reformed churches in Southern California. Why didn't you go to any of them? Okay, okay, hang on, hang on. Let's hear him out. Not raised as a religious Jew, I, you know, secular, mm -hmm. but what I came across was, you know, to me, what spoke to me the most was the teachings of Jesus. I mean, I thought, you know, here's, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love thy neighbor. These ideas, to me, they cut across all religions and they're profound. And that my dad used to tell me when, when I was younger, he said, you know, if you believe in 
do unto others, and you really believe in that and take that to heart, you don't need the Ten Commandments because all the things that happen that are listed in the Ten Commandments, if you apply do unto others, you'll know mm -hmm. the right thing to do. You don't. You right, know, you don't right. have to say to somebody, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. Th th these things are, you, you live with them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a flawed person. I'll fail here and there, but I always come back to that, which is how mm -hmm. do I want myself to be treated? How do I treat somebody else? And those are the teachings of Jesus. And I felt that this movement, this political movement, has gotten far away. This Christian nationalism has... Okay, let's, before we get to the Christian nationalism, what he just laid out is Christian nationalism. You might say, well, that's not nationalism. That's Christian universalism because it's not a religion. I learned it from my father. If you read Christian Smith's book, Soul Searching, and you listen to what he just said, you'd be like, oh, well, morality is self-evident. It's not really religion. Religion is when you go to the synagogue or you go to the church or you go to the temple or you go to the cathedral or you go to the religious place and you read. You don't need the Ten Commandments if you have the golden rule. Isn't that what America is about? Isn't that why they built... Do you know who Kristen Kobes Dubain's mentor was? George Marsden. Same history professor I had at Calvin College back in the day. You know what the first page of this book says? When Duke University was established in 1924, its founding bylaws stated the aims of Duke University are to assert a faith in the eternal kind of knowledge and religion set forth in the teaching and character of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, Rob Reiner might flinch at the Son of God stuff, but let's continue. The founders built a massive Gothic chapel at the center of the campus and next to it a well-endowed school of religion, which suggested the the medieval pattern that placed theology alongside medicine and law as preeminent professional faculty. Not until the 1960s did the new university give up required religion courses for undergraduate. Duke was not unusual among American institutions of higher education in the era of any of this respect. In 1924, chapel attendance was still required for undergrads at the nearby University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, as it was in Yale and Princeton, and administrators spoke of the Christian character of their work. In 1939, nearly one-fourth of state universities and colleges still held at least voluntary chapel services. Can you imagine if a political party today in any state in the country mandated that students going to state universities had to attend compulsory chapel services presided over by Christian ministers like myself, there would be an outrage. Dread Christian nationalism alive and well. A number of state schools gave credit for course, coursework offered by denominational campus ministries. Most of the leading private universities included divinity schools. New cathedral-like towers were the architectural centerpieces of the University of Chicago, Yale, and Princeton. Wellesley College, founded in the 1870s by friends of Dwight L. Moody, gave up its religious requirements all about the same time as Duke.
It's the first page of the book. The first page. What Rob Reiner articulates here is the bequeathal of the mainline Christian churches mid-20th century that even Jews, who once they were let into the institutions by, well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, of course, let in the Catholics and the Jews, and of course, you had this book, Protestant Catholic Jew, all together in America. This is Christian nationalism and has been around for a long time. But you say, now, wait a minute, then why all of the, well, a lot of it is branding, because if we can say Christian nationalism, we can sort of, we can sort of capitalize on a lot of the anti-Christian sentiment that has been around in the country for a very, for a very short time. Jordan Hall, going to church. There's lots more to it, but that's a minimum. Uh, and et cetera, et cetera, like many, many times, just like, wow, holy smokes, boy. And that's that sense of arrogance. Mm. Man. And the arrogance was double-bladed. One side was the allergy, which I think is a culturally honed thing, right? Nothing in our culture has been more, um, how would I say, negatively propagandized than, in fact, Christianity. Hmm. And this isn't that complicated. I mean, you're hardest on yourself. Hmm. Your next hardest on the people you hold closest to you. Strangers can oftentimes always get the, the shiniest version of yourself. Same thing here. You know, Western hmm. culture has been hardest on Western culture. Hmm. And Christianity is at the very center of that. And there's some meaningful malevolence of people pointing directly at it. So part of it was that. Part of it was just simply inheriting. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, when postmodernism was kicking in, when the new atheism was kicking on, and even if it was just being absorbed from the side, that allergy. Hmm. The other piece was actually just the, let's say remnants, although of course, with proper humility, it probably aren't the last, this probably isn't the last step of continuing to be carved out, but of uh, intellectual arrogance, like the sense of, no, no, we need to invent something new. Right. And we can. Yes. Because we're so fucking smart. Right. And they were so fucking dumb. Yeah. Um, so the idea is, well, the golden rule, Jesus. That's that's just basic stuff. It's not religion. It doesn't belong to anyone. That's just that's just the way things are. But uh oh, the church is in trouble from Christians who are being too Christiany. It's gone far away from the teachings of Jesus. It's Oh, it's the, the church has lost the teachings of Jesus. Now, what's so funny about this is that the new atheists tried to save the country from Christianity. And now, you know, those who are basically steeped in what the mainline church left America mid-20th century are going to try to save the culture from Christianity. But they're just like the new atheists, they're trying to use Christianity to save the culture from Christianity, it's just different forms of Christian nationalism or Christian internationalism or Christian assumptions. And what's amazing is that Rob Reiner basically just says it. <laughs> it's just incredible. Now, there's more to this. And I clipped a little bit of my conversation with John Verveke because John, I think, really hits on 
a lot of what we're talking about here. Where does secularity fit into this mix? Because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the way that secularity was stealing culture all around the world. And we're starting to see this now with, of course, Modi dedicating the new temple to Ram in India. The Hagi so, so in other words, well, Christian imperialism, internationalism has sort of been in decline because, of course, there was always sort of a, a, a cover over the Christian part for the last number of years. And so... The Hagia Sophia goes from being a nice secular museum that you can walk into. Now it's going to be a mosque again. Oh, Modi takes a site that had held a mosque and the mosque is gone and they pour millions of dollars into a new temple of the god Ram and the, the, the president of India goes to dedicate the temple and his party is running on Hinduism against the Buddhists and the Muslims and, and, you know, and the Christians and religion suddenly has a valence. And in a sense, Rob Reiner said, no, no, let's keep the hood on. Let's keep it on. Let's, 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 we're not going to say Jesus. Okay. Cause that'll get you. So just, just call it assuming to be good. There's a backlash. Yeah, there's a backlash to secularism. Backlashes are, are complex things because sometimes they can be corrections. Sometimes yeah. they can be just reactions. And we seldom know for until far past our lifetimes. Well, I want to respond because this is another tonos, another tension. And this is between two notions within sort of the philosophy of law, between substantive justice and procedural justice, right? And substantive justice is that which constitutes justice in the sense of, you know, that's a just thing. And so there are things we pursue as a, as a society that we think are substantially just, like, you know, we want to re reduce suffering or something like that. Procedural justice is the processes by which you're trying to achieve your substantial gains to always be really self-correcting. And one of the things that secularity did well, to my mind, is pull those two apart and mm. say, we can commit to different pursuits of substantial justice in our society, but what will hold us together is we will all prioritize over our honed pursuits of substantial justice. We will pursue a commitment to procedural justice. We will all say that you can pursue your Christianity, I can pursue what I'm doing, but if we come into conflict, we will all go to this place that allows to tell you or me how we behave okay. in the public sphere because we're commitment. We're, this space is committed to procedural justice. And one of the things that a centrist is committed to is preserving the importance of procedural justice. And what I, one of the things I'm again worried about is I see the left and the right undermining procedural justice yeah. at the because of the elevation of substantive justice. Yeah. And so what was gained in secularity, and I think that was part of what was going on with the separation of church and state. In the church, you will pursue your substantive justice. In the state, we will have procedural justice enshrined, and we won't confuse these two together, and we'll try to demark, and we'll try to prevent undue interference, but everybody 
all the different church homes will share the same procedural justice. Yeah. And that and that clip goes on and you can find it in the channel. And and you know, it was fun getting the pushback because this is really the area that we're dealing with. Now, part of the problem of the framing of this conversation, find the right tab. Part of the problem of the framing of this conversation is that when they get a little into it, they very quickly sort of get out of their depth because you very quickly realize that Rob Reiner basically starts and says, well, it's the golden rule from Jesus. And if you have that, you have everything you need. But then when you get into some of these substantive justice issues, there's the anxiety that, well, where, where exactly is the center? Where is the due process? And of course, you know, all of the, all of the discussion about January 6th and Trump, this is Trump is a threat to procedural justice. And, and of course, Trump is so undisciplined in what he says, or maybe clever or chaotic, and it's hard to know, depending on who you ask. Um, no, he's going to restore procedural justice because the other side has corrupted it. And so where you want to have sort of a nice laid out boundary where the procedural justice and the substantive justice are sort of nicely delineated. Well, part of what happens with modernity, and if you go back to my clip and you listen all the way through with John Verveke, well, the same thing is happening in science. And this is all part of the recession of modernity. Now, some of you know exactly what clip I'm going to play now because I've played it a lot. And, well, why? Well, I'll have John Verveke talking about really nicely delineating it. And, well, holy post watchers will probably see Tim Keller and say, well, he's a, he's a good guy. And, of course, some are going to look at talent Tim Keller and like, no, he's kind of a sellout. And, but Keller sort of lays it out quite nicely. So let me give you the best answer I can. Uh, liberal democracy, which is how our, I'm using the word liberal very broadly, liberal democracy, which is how our constitution was written, how our, you know, how our country was founded, was the idea that the government is neutral when it comes to religion and religious beliefs. It does not impose religion and religious beliefs on people. It doesn't impose a... Now, I played this clip many times. I'll put the link to it below. He's going to talk about procedural secularism and programmatic secularism. Programmatic secularism is basically trying to, um, your, trying to get your your substantive justice smuggled into your procedure so you can always win. And what's been happening with the recession of modernity is that entire framework is questioned. And, and that's basically what Keller will say. Worldview on people. It doesn't say, uh, it, it, it doesn't hook up to Catholicism or Chris or Price, you know, Lutheranism or whatever. And therefore, it's big on freedom of association, freedom of speech. It's a pluralistic society, so you have Jews and Catholics and various kinds of Protestants and atheists, and 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 it doesn't impose a worldview or religious views on people. 
and uh, or moral values on people. And it came out of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment was born a couple hundred years before uh, America in the wars of religion when everybody was fighting, basically people were dying as to which religion my my country is going to be. And the, a lot of the thinkers of Europe came up and said, hey, you know what? Let's let's create a society in which there's no one religion that is the official religion. And we are coming together just as reasonable people and we decide how we want to live together. And uh, we, 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 we park our religion at the door when we come into the public realm and we we make laws based on, you know, common common good and that kind of thing. And for a very long time, that worked in America. And I just want you to know that that's the problem. The big problem is that liberal democracy is in crisis. And the reason it's in crisis is because, and here's the irony, and I, I don't think I, I, I think I could trace this out if I was writing something down. I think it'd be a little hard orally right now to do it. Weirdly enough, liberal democracy kind of led to the decline of religion, probably, because it, it really said, you know, religion is okay for your private life, but when it comes to the public life, we really don't need it. You know, it's really not important. We just use science and reason to figure out how we're going to live. And you, you park your religion at the door when we come out here and talk together, you know, whether you're a Jew or a Catholic or a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist, you, you, you know, you you come together and we just we just on you know we just decide this and it was it was part of uh i think what weakened faith because it was really saying faith is a private thing it just makes you happy but it really isn't all that necessary for how you live your whole life whatever but the fact is that when religion started to decline the thing that now i i have some atheist friends who admit this Say the thing that actually held us together was not freedom of speech, freedom of association, you know, using our reason. What held us together was like 80% of the population went to either a Catholic or a, or a Protestant church. They actually went. And that even though, like, you know, the liberals and conservatives in Congress would were arguing over taxes or unions, but they would never argue over same-sex marriage. They all thought it would be a horrible thing. In other words, everybody was a nominal, 80, 90% of people were nominal Christians. And because they were nominal Christians, they had, they had a moral base and they lived with the illusion that we're really not a Christian country, we're a secular country. But the fact is they'd never really had to deal with pluralism using liberal democratic uh, you know, structure. And when real pluralism came along, when real pluralism came along, we found out we, we couldn't abide it. And so now here's the first thing that happened. The first, the first group of people that actually moved away from liberal democracy into we're going to impose our worldview on you were the progressives. They were the first people to start doing it. Um, what uh, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, talks of, he calls it programmatic secularism rather than procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. But, but programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you, ex well, put it this way. In the 60s and 70s, e well, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, 
that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony, it wasn't pluralistic, there was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when, when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of defining hate speech and obscene speech? And progressives said, we're going to do it. And so what they actually have done is they are imposing a kind of programmatic, uh, hard secularism. And conservatives and Christians have seen that. They say, you know what, you're not being neutral anymore. You're really actually pushing. You're really, you're actually saying, you're actually saying you have to keep your religion totally, totally private when our religion doesn't allow that. Now, by the way, it's the same problem with Islam. So they're going to have the more Muslims that are here, the more problems they're going to have there too. But the issue is that conservatives are pushing back wrongly, I think, and are saying, yeah, liberal democracy doesn't work. We need, there's a lot of conservatives and we need Christian nationalism. We actually need to get the state needs to be overtly Christian, overtly Protestant, or there needs to be, you know, the Catholic integralists say that the Catholic Church should be the state church. And what they're saying is there's absolutely no way to get that moral consensus. We're always going to be fragmented. Liberal democracy doesn't work. And it is a crisis because the fact is, as long as everybody was a nominal Christian, liberal democracy works and it doesn't, we're not that anymore. Liberal democracy undermined Christianity and religion in general, and created this situation where we truly are divided. And now the old liberal democracy, democratic, uh, uh, you know, proceduralism doesn't bring us together. We're just mm -hmm. at each other's throats. We have alternate views of reality, totally different views of reality. And I don't have a good way forward. I mean, if you were asking me that question, I'm not going to answer it because I'm actually thinking it out. I still think liberal democracy is way better than Catholic integralism or Protestant Christian nationalism. But I also feel like you've got to call out the progressives, you know, to say this, what you consider democracy actually isn't. It is actually an imposition of your worldview on us. So I, I feel like we have to call both sides out. But when I do that, I am, maybe Carrie, you know, I am called both sideism, um, you know, playing, you know, or, or, or being trying to be apolitical when you can't be. I, I don't think that's possible. But I do think it's fair to say, sorry, right and left, you're, I don't know what the alternative is, but you, what you are proposing is absolutely wrong. We'll never. Okay. So played that plenty of times before. And of course, there's this video with DC Schindler, who basically at the end says, well, the answer is the Catholic Church. And that's similar to what Tim Keller had just said because of the the problem, the, 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 the crisis of liberalism. And, you know, what, what to me is so frustrating by, with this level of discourse, well, we're never going to make a documentary and we're just going to try to tar and feather all of those Christian nationalists. And it's like, Reiner basically just let us know he's kind of a, it's kind of a nominal Christian in some way. And that's that's just that old regime. And so why can't we go back to the way it was? But of course, if we said, all right, we'll go back to the 1950s. Well, no, 
Well, we can't go back to the way it was. Well, what, what way it was do you want to go back to? There's no going back. So what do you do? I mentioned in the, in the Bridges of Meaning question and answer today that one of the real uses of this little corner is to do this collective cognition. And, and not just to sort of do it with ideas, but the relationships have to be there. And I thought I might play some of the Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro video, but I thought Christian laid it out nicely. Now he's an even slower talker than I am, which is not a, not, not a problem because he's thinking out loud like we are, and he's probably more careful in his speech than I am. But I thought he laid it out quite well here. Christian, no candle today. He stayed at church and it's still at our house church. So no ritual today. February 1st, this little corner of the internet and how I see it next in the TLC. This week, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro had a conversation on his, Jordan Peterson's Daily Wire uh, podcast. And the main brunt of their conversation had to do with postmodernism. And there wasn't a whole lot in the first section that was new or interesting to me. And I actually fell asleep partway through it. And then I woke up and they were talking about um, the current state of things. Uh, and Peterson kind of came in with this section where he says, politics is falling flat. He said, top political figures don't get views on YouTube because of my, in my opinion, my opinion is because they don't have any wisdom or ideas of depth. And Peterson went on to say, they're not talking based on first principles. They're based off of pulling data or, you know, testing the winds versus at arc speakers. And he even contrasted this with political arc speakers versus um, kind of first principle arc speakers. Uh, he said the, the people who spoke on first principles, their videos gained massive tracks, traction, and I think Constantine Kissin from Trigonometry Podcast is the greatest example of that. You have a former-ish comedian uh, dissecting culture versus something more on the basis of platitudes. So, Now, what's really interesting to me about this point is if you go way back, so this video was from me, January 3, 2018, over sacraments and the priesthood and vestments. So, so let's dive in. Let's let's take a look at the the first. Uh, let's take a look at the questions and answers. Can we take the biblical? Andrew Wells asks, "Can we take the biblical story seriously enough with also, without also keeping biblical traditions? What's the psychological impact of group gathering, church going?" before now th these are two separate questions and they're they're really quite separate and so the first question is can we take the bible seriously and that gets into kind of the central um the, the central struggle around peterson and and when he says biblical tradi biblical traditions boy we could have a long conversation about that and then the second is the psychological value of groups i think we could take the biblical story seriously enough but i don't think that it's particularly easy. Um, the traditions bind the community together. Now I'm saying that, and I don't go to church, you know, and the reason I don't go to church is because, well, it drives me crazy to speak frankly. I haven't been able to sit in a situation like that ever since I was, well, ever really, <laughs> that's really the truth of it, ever. Um, I'm not convinced that that's a good thing because I do believe, and I've had good conversations about this with Jonathan Pajot, I do believe that communal return to the source of the community's ethics is actually a necessary thing. And maybe I'm atoning for my past sins by doing these biblical lectures at the moment, which is something that's communal. 
So, and then because there's also something about going where a bunch of other people are to reaffirm your commitment to to the good that you're all all aiming at. That's that's got some power in it, and and I don't think that that's something that we should forego. I think it's dangerous. I mean, look, even if you're cynical about church, and I guess I would put myself in that category, it's it's certainly the case that communal church going in the 1950s, say, provided the average person with at least an hour a week where they were contemplating, no matter how poorly, the purpose of ethics in life and, and the idea of a higher purpose and a higher meaning in life. And you got to think that spending an hour a week thinking about that is better than never doing it at all. Just go back to my, go back to the podcast where Jordan Hall talks about, just had this bias, this, this couldn't stand, just had this bias, anything but Christian, couldn't stand church, but it's an hour a week. I mean, really? Is that, it's sort of like, Haman, go dip in the Jordan. No, I'm not, I don't want to bathe in your dirty river. And the slaves that he enslaved, probably in raiding Israel said, if he'd asked you for something big, you would have done it. He's asking you for something small. And you stick your nose up. What does that say? So, I don't know how to that tradition can be revivified in a meaningful way. But I think it's, I really do think it's a catastrophe that we've lost it. Because we don't have a center, uh, an ethical center that holds our community together. And the consequence of that is that we're fragmenting quite badly. So... And, and I think that's a, that, that's a classic Peterson answer. It's, it's self-critical. It's um, it's it's very honest and transparent, and and again, this these are these are some of the qualities that I think um, have really uh, brought a lot of people to appreciate and love. Now, now let's let's listen to the lying answer. You said you don't go to church because the pastors are lying most of the time. What do you mean by lying in this instance? I don't. My experience has been that they don't believe what they're saying. That's what it sounds like to me. That's what I mean by lying. They say these things and they tell people to believe them, but they don't believe them themselves. And so, and they're actually not listening to them. They're not listening to what they're saying. That's the thing that I've always had this experience in church. And there's lots of other reasons I don't go to church. And, and a lot of them have to do with me, not with the insufficiency of church. But, you know, a lot of the scriptural writings really have really hit me and I do understand some of them I think to some degree and it's it's kind of painful to hear them utilized by people who are doing it formulaically or without conviction or even worse knowing full well that they don't believe what they're saying and so that's what I mean by lying now it's important to remember now, now it strikes me about wow look what difference six years can make <laughs> well, one of the things that struck me about ark and and christian really brings it out here is and of course peterson's always looking at the analytics and he's a social scientist so he looks at this data yeah politicians are liars uh, i'm not trying to you know so, so are preachers, okay? So I'm not trying to paint a brush on you and cast stones, but what, what did Peterson mean by lying? Well, they're using, they're using words to achieve other things. They're, in a sense, violating the words. 
Uh, ben Shapiro went on to say he sees that even in his own content. And I see that as a pattern. Uh, most of what I see from him in my feeds these days are reactions to shorts. And then even this week, his biggest uh, online endeavor was his appearance on a rap video, rap music video that is now number one on iTunes. So that's making sense. And you see that in the Daily Wire and their shift towards culture and first principles with Peterson and Peugeot's shows and making movies and rap songs, um, it moving more into comedy uh, and acting versus political commentary that they've been on for years, you know, since, since this all 2015, 2016 times. And I think that's very interesting <laughs> that politics is falling flat in our culture. And it's just another point on the failures and the failings and the crumblings of institutions. So where do we go? What's interesting to me about this whole movement, okay, we're going to do a documentary. Let's be clear. Let's not lie. This documentary is about politics. This documentary is about moving the needle in a presidential election. Okay? And however you feel about that, fine. In a democracy, you all get to have your political opinions. You get to talk about them. You all get to share your religious positions. You get to talk about them. Those are the rules of the game. Those are the procedural rules. Me and Rob Reiner, you know, we both got bald heads and white beards, and we agree on this. Okay? Um, but let's be clear. This is politics. And I'm a little hard-pressed to mobilize the church and say, Christians are doing this in politics. And now Rob Reiner is clear. Yeah, Christians should vote. Christians should debate, yada, yada. But I'm standing up for the church. Oh, okay. The church you never bother to go to. Why? Why? Well, I'm going to stand with these other people. Okay. Okay. Let's look at the video itself. I, I think yeah, that's yeah. totally right. And so the question becomes, what kind of conversations are productive at this point? And, and so what, what you're seeing is that in that vacuum, in the vacuum where the conversation doesn't have, we can't have that, that council of people sitting around the fire and talking about virtue because nobody has a common concept of virtue. You see figures who are rising, again, across the political aisle, who just use extremely charged emotivist language. Uh, I, and, and that extremely charged emotivist language goes directly to the root of how people feel without any sort of virtuous substructure. And so it's, I'm making this statement. The only reason you would disagree with this statement is because you're an evil person who's a child molester. I'm not kidding. I mean, this is this is mm -hmm. literally the level of discourse in, in so much of the in, in so much of sort of the cultural sphere, and the, and so how do you how do you even how do you build on that? And, and to me, what that says is that you know maybe the the time for now bear in mind. I know who is saying this. This is a guy who has built his fame and fortune on. <laughs> Doing exactly what he just denounced. I've watched, I've seen enough Ben Shapiro videos. I've seen enough Daily Wire. I get it. Okay? I get it. And, and I know that even within Daily Wire, they have a certain degree of loathing for their own business. And I, I, yeah, stop the lying there too. Don't don't make the red meat videos. Well, how can we have the conversation? And they're both basically saying we we can't have the conversation like this. Good. Then let's all stop. Large scale, broad scope, 30,000 foot building is ending. And, and what we actually need to do is go back to the campfire. 
meaning that make people, you know, privy to the campfire. But one of the things that you've been doing a lot, Jordan, with, with things like the Exodus series or the Genesis or, or some of the other things you're doing is getting people, giving people access to that campfire of people who they see as virtuous, that they can actually have that sort of conversation, be in dialogue with that. But a lot of that's going to have to take place on the small scale. And social media radically opposes the small scale. It's a scalable enterprise in which the person with the most hits is, is rewarded. I'm not sure there's going to be a, a substitute in the future for in-person events and meetings with people that are going to allow them to find, again, the, the, the little platoons of society that have been broken up are going to have to be rebuilt. Well, uh, I, I think that that's partly why my tour tours have been popular, because it's a mystery in some ways, right? Because much of what I say, you can get your fill of whatever I have to say online. Now, I do say new things in my public appearances, but I don't think that people fundamentally come there for the new things. That's like a bonus. The reason they come there is to find a community, right? To do something collective. And the events are not structured to facilitate the formation of a community. They're not. Ark, I think, what my biggest criticism of Zark was not sort of the theoretical question of civilizational Christianity and, and this whole question of the viability of liberalism. You got 1,500 people together, 1,500 really important people. In fact, what's been fun is that I've, I've now met some people who were at Ark, and I've met them online, and I found them online, and we're having conversations online, and it's, oh, you were at Ark too? So was I. Why didn't I see you there? Well, it's really hard to take 1,500 people and, and sort of figure out how to knit those. And I'll tell you where it, where it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen sitting in a big room looking up at screens. It does happen sitting in small groups, figuring out how to facilitate a conversation, estuary, even trying to do this online, this little corner, having meetings, having groups where you come together, not thousands, but maybe hundreds, and then down into fives and tens. Because it's in the groups of fives and tens that you actually, you don't have a campfire with 100 people. You have a campfire with six to 12 small groups. So, You really want to build, you really want to rebuild society. These guys are right. You know, these guys are right. And you might, and I know I, some people watching this video will look at these two and say, they're the problem. And then other people watching this video will look at Rob Reiner and Phil Visser and say, they're the problem. Well, okay, I'm going to be a Christian minister now. You want to know what total depravity is, which is what Jordan Hall is now, you know, figuring out. Jordan, or Jordan Hall has now figured out what total depravity means, which means that when the first the first person you look for when you're looking for a problem is in the mirror and say, I am the problem. It's the old G.K. Chesterton thing, which, you know, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story. So many apocryphal stories around G.K. Chesterton is a, a newspaper does a survey. What's the problem with the world? G.K. Chesterton writes, I am. <laughs> That's exactly what we need. And so then we come together and we sit in little groups and we sit in little groups of not people handpick selected so they all line up with whatever tribalism I have, be that political or religious or what have you, but we sit down together and we start to talk and we figure out how to have a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, we may disagree. And um, 
people might call you a liar or a bullshitter or a Christian nationalist or a um, conservative or what have you. But maybe the next week you come together and you do it all over again. And then you do it all over again. And then you do it all over again. And what you knit together is a community. I think Jordan is right. People want to come to the event because they have a sense that there's something in person that is really powerful, but they go and they rub shoulders with people a little bit and they sit down in their chair and then they watch Jordan do his thing and there's a few question and answer. And maybe if they dug deeper for the VIP ticket, then they stand in line with 150 other people. And again, nobody works a crowd like Jordan Peterson. Nobody I've ever seen do it as well as him, period. Yet... 45 seconds with Jordan, shake his hand, he's terribly gracious, listen to 45 seconds of your story, and then on to the next one. I don't know how he does it. I have trouble after an hour not feeling like, oh, I want to hear more, because they're a human being. So, Rob Reiner, mid-20th century Christian nationalist, Believes in the teachings of Jesus. Read all the books. A seeker. Have a little compassion for him. Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro. They're owning up to the problem. Okay, well, let's see what Daily Wire does, okay? Because I know, I mean, it's so amazing listening to Ben Shapiro basically denounce his business model. (laughs) And, and, And Phil Visser and Rob Reiner... The best thing we can figure out how to do to knit the nation together is make a documentary in which one group of Christians attacks another. Oh, that'll help. You want to know why I don't like fighting about theology on YouTube? It's this. Sure, we can have theological conversations, but I'm there with C.S. Lewis that if you want to have a theological conversation, have it among friends in a room with comfy sofas and a nice fire and some lovely snacks where you can disagree fervently on the Trinity or Jesus is Lord or all of these things. And so bring your ideas in there and talk about them. That's fine. But Rob Reiner would agree, let's talk. Let's not hurt each other. These guys would agree. I mean, that's Jordan Peterson. He says, we we need free speech so we don't have violence. Exactly right. Ben Shapiro will say the same thing. So Ben Shapiro, Rob Reiner, and Jordan Peterson, and Phil Visser can all agree on this. So get into a little room and have a conversation. And figure out how to structure it. I have an estuary protocol you can use. Be my guest. Just go to estuaryhub.com or .org. I don't know, but type in estuary hub and you'll probably find it on the internet. Estuary protocol. And then how to have a little conversation with a little group of total strangers, which probably after an hour and a half or two hours, you leave that conversation saying, that was pretty good. John Van Donk and I ran through Europe, running that sucker every night in some places in the UK. Different groups of people, total strangers get together. And say, that was pretty good. No, some of them, it didn't, you know, change their life. No, it was a conversation. Keep those expectations low. But bit by bit by bit by bit. These guys are right. Put it together. Rob Reiner's right. Treat others as you want to be treated. If you ask Freddie on the Freddie and Paul show, there we go, Freddie. I mentioned the Freddie and Paul show. You ask Freddie, what was today's sermon about? Treat one another as you'd like to be treated. Every time Freddie says, that's what your sermon was about. 
It's usually it's usually not. But that's Freddy's rule for life, and if Freddy can get it, you can too. So there's enough of that. Leave a comment. Blast away. <laughs>